0: In the days that our text is speaking of, um, it would have been about 1,470 years prior when Moses had led the children of Israel out of Egypt, and he had done so after God saved his people through the Passover lamb. Now, do you recall the story, if you went to Sunday school, you know the story. If you are familiar with the Exodus and all of what happened in, with God's people being um, delivered out of Egypt, you'll remember that the spotless lamb was prepared, the spotless lamb was slaughtered, and its blood was spread on the doorpost and the lentil, so that when the angel of death came, in that final plague, that they would, they would... Passover. is welcome back. Man, it's good to have you guys. And I should say, before we go any further, it's just a privilege to be your pastor. Man, what a joy it is to see you week after week and to come and to be able to preach and share a little bit from God's Word together and to sing together. Chris, thanks for leading so well. Emma, for your voices You're a gift to us. We're grateful for you guys. It's a joy to be able to preach this morning, and so I just, so thank you. But for it's good to have you back. Hope you're well. So the Exodus, the deliverance of Israel from Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea, all that came after it, it was made possible through this unstoppable plan of God. It was not just happenstance. It was the unstoppable plan of God, to provide a way of escape for Israel through the blood of the Passover lamb. And, um, and so what we come to, almost 1,500 years later, the Israelites have been celebrating this Passover, remembrance of that redemption God had provided for his people for like almost 1,500 years. So it's built into the culture, it's, it's built into part of the excitement, part of what God has done in the people who are looking forward to the Messiah to come. And this night that we've come to in this text, this night is going to be the last of the Passover meals and the first of what we will celebrate at the end of this service, the Lord's Supper. This will be the night when he finally explains in more detail the meaning and significance of his death. It'll be a night when he's betrayed by one of his very own disciples, one whom he already knows and has cared for and ministered alongside of. This is the night that Jesus is going to spend some considerable time teaching his disciples in what's called the upper room discourses that we read in John chapter 13 through 16. I'd encourage you, put it in the follow-up this afternoon, but I would encourage you to spend time this week reading those upper room discourses. Because Luke just kind of passes, passes through the upper room pretty quickly, all in all, but John does not. You can listen to what he has to say to the disciples about serving and the call to love and the promise of heaven and, and so much more. And so what we've come to today, this Sunday morning, 2,000 years after that, so th- almost 3,500 years later after the exodus, and the Passover lamb, the original Passover lamb, what we've come to is that very night when all of this happens. And The very next day in our text, Jesus is going to die for your sins. And so what we come to in this text is not, not that we ever come to a text that's not important, but what we come to in this text is holy ground. This is where Jesus has set his face to come to, to be your Passover lamb. So among all that we could stop to consider in greater detail this morning, the one thing I want us to see is that without any ambiguity, this is what we want to see, that absolutely nothing is able to thwart the sovereign and loving plan of God to redeem his people. He's gonna redeem his people. Nothing's gonna thwart that. Not you, not anyone. A few things that form the logic of that statement. First, that there is a God in the first place, and that God is sovereign over all things. And as such, as sovereign and sovereign over all things, he is also sovereign in his plans. Numbers 23 verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? What is it that Jesus has come to do? Seek and save who? the lost. Come to seek and save the lost. Nothing is going to stop him from that path. He will fulfill that which he set out to do. This is the first logical piece of that statement that I shared. The second thing that informs that statement is that there is a need in the first place for mankind to be redeemed. Um, Literally everything we come to in the Bible speaks about mankind's need for redemption, deliverance from bondage to sin, deliverance from bondage to death, deliverance from bondage to Satan. This is the reality of all mankind. The third thing that informs the statement is that there are those who try to thwart the plan to redeem. There really are those, literally from the third chapter of the Bible to the very last day. And the fourth thing that informs our statement is that God has revealed his plan to redeem a people for himself, and that plan will not be thwarted. Uh, Not 2,000 years ago on this day and not today, it will not be thwarted. He is going to redeem a people for himself to dwell with forever. And so to try to grapple with all of that, we're going to consider the following main points as we walk through the text. Foolish people resist the Son of God. That's the first point. Secondly, the accuser opposes the Son of God. And third, nothing deters the Son of God. Absolutely nothing is able to thwart the sovereign and loving plan of God to redeem his people. First point, foolish people resist the Son of God. Verse 37 of chapter 21. Every day he, that is Jesus, was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. And now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. So Jesus, Jesus is continuing to teach in the temple beginning early in the morning when already crowds would gather to him to hear what he had to say, and the Jewish leadership at the same time was, was done with him. They had kind of tracked with him for some time. They were done with him and moved into their own meeting. These, these leaders did not want people to know what they were meeting about at all. We've seen over the last number of chapters that Jesus has remained a, a pain in the sides of all the Jewish religious leaders. And Right from the earliest days of his ministry, we've seen them resist his teaching. We've seen, him, uh, seen them resist his miracles. They've made plans to arrest him, to kill him, and if they could get rid of him, as far as they were concerned, the problems would be over. He had claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be the Son of Man. He claimed to be the Son of David. He claimed to be the Christ, the Messiah. And he had angered them so much through his teaching and his parables in in the fact that he had called out their hypocrisy in front of large groups through his teaching. And they just were done with him. They wanted him dead. They wanted him dead now, but they were scared of people. The time was never right for them to kill him. They feared the people too much. Generally, Jesus was well thought of in the populace. Was, they love seeing, hearing his teaching. They love seeing his miracles. They love being participants in the healings. And so, the l- religious leaders were scared of them uh, because they thought if they do anything against Jesus, if they try to um, arrest him or try to do something in public, there's going to be significant reprisal. You know. So over the last number of days in our text, we've seen these foolish religious leaders trying other ways to reject him. Even though, again, they've seen miracle after miracle. You're looking for miracles today in God? Uh, Yeah, we want to see God do... Jesus was all about miracles in the kingdom of God, preaching the kingdom of God, miracle after miracle after miracle. And yet, in their foolishness, they rejected him, resisted him. And so they began to try other ways to reject him. They've tried to pick holes in what he said and to make his teaching and him look ridiculous. Remember a couple of weeks ago from sermons that we've spoken of. Time after time, they fail miserably. Not one of them had been able to shut Jesus up. Actually, what happened, right, was in Jesus' answers, they had nothing to say in response. They were stymied. And instead of seeing his influence damaged, they'd only seen his influence grow until some of the Pharisees actually say in John chapter 12, verse 19, you see that you are gaining nothing, fellas. Look, the world has gone after him. That's the place. They're they're done with him. You're gaining nothing in arguing with him. You're gaining nothing in trying to combat him. The world's gone after him. He needs to die. Yes, yes, he does but not by the way that you desire. So as far as their blind, foolish, darkened minds were concerned, things were getting out of control, and they needed to act fast. But how were they going to do that? They still, again, feared the people's reaction. How could they lay their hands on them without entangling themselves? And the issue was, in this moment, was that it's not like it wasn't a busy time in Jerusalem. The Passover was happening. There were literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people in Jerusalem at that time. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was to be celebrated, one of the most important times in the Jewish religious calendar. As you might imagine, that when there are so many people in one spot, that it doesn't take much for a riot to happen and for them to get in trouble. And you consider for a moment that during the Passover, which speaks of God delivering from a foreign oppressor, that Rome's got its ears to the ground and eyes to the streets, because surely zealots were around ready to go at it. There's a powder keg that was just waiting to be lit. But on top of all that, they had seen and heard Jesus, this man of Nazareth, claiming to be the Messiah, who continued to drive them batty. And how would the crowds that had been following respond if they arrested him publicly? And so it was these things that necessitated the Jewish leadership to meet in private so they could try to figure out what to do. And the Luke doesn't say anything about it. John chapter 11 does about this meeting. This is what it says, John 11, 47 through 48. The chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? for this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Listen, the the fact that they would state so clearly that Jesus had performed many signs, signs that they had seen with their own eyes, they had attested to it themselves, signs so evident that there was, in fact, clear evidence that he was indeed who he said he was, so much so that they knew that People were believing in him, yet while claiming that to be true, those things to be true, still entirely missing the truth is more than simply ironic. It's absolute foolishness. All this right before their eyes, over three years, they see it all, they witness everything, and yet they resist him and they reject him. In their foolishness, They exalted themselves in their position above the Son of God whom they'd been waiting centuries for. And perhaps this describes some of you who are listening today as well. Do you recall from the passage in chapter 3 that we considered months and months ago about the genealogy of Jesus? Could have been called into question immediately upon any investigation into the records. The records were well kept. The Pharisees had nothing to say about Jesus' claim to be of the Davidic line because he simply was. And yet they rejected him. They resisted him. They could have shut him up, but they did not, and their foolish hearts were darkened more. Do you recall Jesus' declaration to his hometown about being the Messiah, pulling from Isaiah chapter 61 in the local synagogue? Way back at the beginning, the people's foolish hearts were darkened, and they tried to throw him off a cliff. That was their response to this wonderful teaching that they had just heard, and these miracles that they had witnessed. Do you recall the Pharisees' reactions to Jesus healing on the Sabbath over and over and over again? Their foolish hearts were darkened, and they didn't simply agree to disagree. They ever increasingly tried to figure out how to get them to stop doing miracles on the Sabbath, stop interfering with their control over the people in their own lives. Stop it, Jesus. I mean, how many miracles would they need to see? How much of God's revelation must they have? Here is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, standing right in front of them, and yet their foolish eyes could not see. They were blinded to him, and they weren't just neutral in their blindness. They rejected, they resisted him, the Son of God, in their blindness. Now, that's the question, how much more revelation of God do you need The thing is, it's nothing surprising. I mean, on the one hand, it's absolutely shocking, but it's anything but surprising. It's the predicament of not only the religious leaders, but all of humanity. The Apostle Paul would say to the Romans in chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, resist the truth, reject the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God's shown it to them. The reality is foolish people resist God, and foolish people resist the Son of God. And by that, I mean that all people left to themselves resist the Son of God. They are in absolute bondage to, yes, their free will to always disobey God, to always resist God. They're they're free. And yet they are free only to do one thing because mankind always resists God. That's their bent. That's our bent. Psalmist says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They're corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There's none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one not even one. It doesn't mean there's not nice people in the world or good people in the world, but as it comes to stance before God, no one does good. No one's holy. And listen, even after Jesus had died and rose again, the religious leaders continued in their foolishness, and they tried to cover up the fact that Jesus' body wasn't in the tomb. They knew his body wasn't in the tomb. Where'd it go? I don't know, but we got to lie about it. How foolish is that? After the 40 days of his continual appearing to hundreds of people, he ascended to heaven and began to do his mighty works through his people that we read of in the book of Acts. And the religious leaders continued in their foolish rejection, resistance of him. Here's what we read Stephen say in Acts chapter 7, right before the religious leaders killed him. He says this. Now, he didn't didn't help his cause any here by saying these things, but nevertheless, it's true. He says, you stiff-necked people... Speaking to Jewish leaders here at the time, okay? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. And which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now betrayed and murdered, you who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. I mean, that did not go over well. Friends, it's the fool who stubbornly resists the Son of God. It's the fool who resists the Holy Spirit. It is the fool who resists God entirely. And in our resistance, and I'm including ourselves in this because because all of us have been or are currently fools who resist God, the Son of God, the Spirit of God. In our resistance of the one for whom we are made and the one to whom we will give account, we prove ourselves, though very wise in our own eyes, to be among the vast company of fools. We are, along with all of mankind, without hope in this world as we cling to the dark foolishness of our impoverished minds, our dead hearts, and our blind unbelief. This is the situation in the world for sure. This is the situation of some in this room. Friends, how do you see resistance to the Son of God at work in your own life? Do you sit here on Sundays and hear about all that Jesus has said and all that he's done? You listen to songs about the good news found in Jesus Christ. You observe people, or, or worse, participate in the enjoyment and celebration of the Lord's Supper, only to find your heart to be cold towards him and your indifferent rejection of his word? his will and his ways, resisting the offer of salvation only to cling to the shambles of your sin-stained life. Friends, may the Lord Jesus open your eyes to see him, to know your need of him this morning. Paul would tell the Corinthian believers this, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved. It's the power of God. So perhaps you're here this morning and you have trusted in Jesus. You believe Him, you want to follow Him, but you often find your heart cold. Sometimes you even choose to not believe God and His Word. You don't trust His promises in the moments. You know, and a fool would judge God by his own thoughts. A fool would judge God by his own perceptions and wisdoms and his, his wisdom, and all, all that hints at some kind of resistance to the Lord. Foolish people resist the Son of God. And, and may you and I not be found among those who resist Jesus. May we be saved from our folly and come to know the power and purposes of God. The good news is that no matter how hard your resistance is to the Son of God, nothing is able to thwart the sovereign and loving plan of God to redeem those who are truly His. So the foolish resists the Son of God. Second point, the accuser opposes the Son of God. Verses three through six. Satan, answered, or Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. And so he consented and sought an opportunity to betray, betray him to them in the absence of a crowd." Let's head back a little bit to the meeting of the religious leaders. So they were trying to figure out how to get to Jesus without being seen. They needed to get to him, frankly, at night, not during the day. And the day he was in the temple, the day he was surrounded by people. At night, not, he wasn't. They had to wait until he had gone to wherever he would stayed at nighttime. And we know from the end of chapter 21 that he had stayed on the mount called Olivet. But evidently, they either didn't know that piece of information, or uh, the mount was filled with olive trees that was just filled with vegetation at the top, and so it would have been hard to find him amid all of that, especially with a group of men to go and arrest him, as we know what happened. So they really didn't know how to get to him, unless they had a guide of some sort. So ultimately, they were in need of someone who knew where he was, where he stayed, someone who would ultimately betray him. And just when they were, you might imagine them kind of coming to this point in their discussion and knock, 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 and they open the door, and there's Judas Iscariot. Now, I would venture to say that everyone in this room knows who Judas Iscariot is. So known is he in this world that if you are one who betrays someone, you are called a Judas. Uh, Luke identifies him in verse 3 as one of the 12, and as one of the 12, that means Judas was called by Jesus to be his disciple. Judas walked and lived with Jesus for three years, and you think about it, for three years he saw miracle after miracle. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the leaders, they, they saw stuff from far, far out um, in the crowd, kind of. Judas walked with Jesus right beside him seeing the miracles, feeling the joy of the miracles, he was so close in. He, he saw the blind receiving sight. He saw the deaf hearing. He saw the lame walking. He saw the sick being cured. He saw the demon-possessed being set free. For three years, he had heard Jesus's wonderful teaching for three, three years, he was given proof after proof after proof that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He, he even was sent out by Jesus a number of chapters ago uh, to, to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He went with them and he came back rejoicing. Yet somehow, he remained a fool in his resistance of Jesus and the Messiah come to save the world from their sins. He and the religious leader sat in the same seat of resistance of the Son of God. And I think one thing we see here, something that we've spoken of before, is that there is a foundation and trajectory to the foolishness of resisting the Son of God. The author of Hebrews would warn us this way, he's speaking to the church here, take care brothers sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Judas did not take care. His resistance turned to rejection, and his foolish and darkened heart became harder and harder, and his unbelief remaining close to the Son of God in geographical proximity while having both feet planted within the kingdom of darkness. It's a scary place to be. And at that point in the story, Judas falls away forever from the living God. Hebrews 6 gives us a picture of what this looks like. But let this land on us with the weight that it deserves. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding them up to contempt." For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its its end is to be burned. This, This is the story of Judas. The reality is that there was a place that Judas got to in his unbelief. He was drifting, 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 drifting away, even though Jesus was right beside him. He was drifting away in his resistance, so much so that it seems as though Judas had never believed in Jesus in the first place. And he had got to a place where he'd resisted him so much that it turned into rejection, and that rejection then turned into satanic opposition which I think we'll see that resistance is the infant stage of satanic opposition. So at this point, his heart didn't just grow hardened. It had been made hard, and then Satan actually entered him. Judas was not simply a disenfranchised disciple who was an unfortunate pawn in the sovereign story of God's redemption, where he wanted to follow God, but he just couldn't because he, you know, he, he he was now an absolute pawn of Satan. His foolish, darkened mind had regressed from resistance to rejection to apostasy, the abandoning of the faith. There is a trajectory of unbelief and is now firmly in the grasp of the Satan, the accuser, the enemy of God. No longer was Judas held back by conscience or morality or fear or some other kind of restraint. He went straight over to Caiaphas's house, joined the meeting, named his price for betraying Jesus. Or betraying Jesus. He had had seemed for some three years to be a disciple of Jesus, but he was an unbeliever, a, a fake, a fraud. He was a lover of money. He stole from the money bag. He lacked mercy towards others and entirely missed the Savior of a world that walked alongside of him. Jesus, in fact, called him early on. One of you, he says to the disciples, and one of you is a devil. Now, from Judas' standpoint, he had wasted three years of his life following this would-be Messiah. He was tired of it, wanted none of it. He wanted out of it, not to mention, you know, at this point, four months of wages would be helpful, which is what 30 pieces of silver amounts to. The religious leaders had found their man. Verse 5 tells us they were more than happy to give him the 30 pieces of silver, a specific amount, by the way, that... Jesus speaks of in Matthew chapter 27 or that, that, that Matthew speaks of in Matthew 27 verses 9 and 10 and tells us that that specific thing was fulfilling a prophecy of Jeremiah and Zechariah. Jeremiah particularly is what Matthew speaks to. So from, from Judas's standpoint, he just wasted three years of his life following this would-be Messiah. But like he was just like the, he, he did not see the grander picture. He did not see that Jesus came to be the Passover lamb. He did not see, he did not understand. Jesus was coming in and he continued to teach even though he had just taken Jerusalem. From Satan's standpoint, however, now was his opportunity to stop the plan of God to redeem his people. He, that is Satan, was in full-out opposition of all that Jesus was doing, all that he was planning on doing, Now, it's a common understanding that Satan is the one that's behind Jesus' death on the cross. And the reality is that Satan is in opposition to the cross. He's in opposition to the grave. Satan wants Jesus dead, not on the cross. He wants him dead now. He wants him dead by Judas. He wants him dead in whatever way possible. No cross, no fulfilled prophecy, no atonement. Satan is ultimately behind the religious leader's rejection. He's ultimately behind Judas's betrayal. His plan to subvert the plan of God, to redeem a people for himself to dwell with, has been going on for some time now. He does not want a Jesus who is going to redeem a people for himself to dwell with. He's not wanting a Jesus who makes atonement for his people. Satan doesn't want a Jesus who satisfies the requirements of God's justice. His entire goal, starting back in Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel, is to kill off the Messiah's bloodline so that there's no cross, no grave, no resurrection, no ascension. That's why the bondage of Egypt and the death of the first of the the Hebrew boys in the Nile River. That's why Balak and Balaam tried to curse the children of Israel. That's why Haman tried to kill the Jews in the Persian Empire during the days of Esther. That's why Satan attempted to kill Jesus as a baby. Remember that? driving him, strangely enough, into Egypt. And it's why Satan wants him dead now. Before any work of atonement can be done on the cross, Satan is in full-out opposition to Jesus going to the cross. Friends, just just a side point. It's not a side point. It's a main point. The cross was the plan of God succeeding, not the plan and resistance and the opposition of the enemy succeeding. Consider Matthew 16 with me for a moment as well. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Peter get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. There it is. Satan does not want the atoning death of Jesus. He does not want the saving of souls by the blood of Christ. Recall with me the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness back in chapter 4. At the end of all his failed attempts, it says that when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Every temptation was to strip him of the opportunity to make atonement for his people. And every bit of the enemy's work in our lives is to keep us from trusting that atonement. Satan wasn't inactive between the point when he left Jesus in the wilderness until this point. But it seems that Satan is clearly on the move now against Jesus at this point. Among all that Satan hoped to accomplish, he enters Judas, not because he just enters people, but he enters Judas to stop the crucifixion from happening, to stop the atonement, to stop the forgiveness of sins of God's people from happening. And he remains on the move today as the roaring lion, looking to steal, kill, and destroy our faith, that trust and that atonement. Listen, Judas wasn't so completely overtaken by Satan that he didn't act of his own accord. He was not an innocent bystander, and don't give Satan too much credit here, and don't pity Judas somehow. Satan didn't force Judas to do something out of his character. All he did was appeal to the sin of greed that was active in him. And we know that Judas liked money, right? I already mentioned that. John chapter 12, verse 6 says, He did not care about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. John Piper helpfully writes this. He says, Satan does not take innocent people captive. There are no innocent people. Satan has power where sinful passions hold sway. Judas was a lover of money, and he covered it with a phony external relationship with Jesus, and then he sold him for 30 pieces of silver. How many of his tribe are there still today? Don't be one, and don't be duped by one. See, Judas was one of the 12, right? Indistinguishable from the rest. But in his continued unrepentant action, he showed that his heart had never been touched by the Savior. He looked like the others. He could talk like them. He could sing with them. He could go with them. He could minister alongside of them. But when push comes to shove, the God of his heart has nothing to do with Jesus because he lives for his own kingdom and not the kingdom of God. He looked like the others, but he was a false friend, a false... Disciple And friends, I think it's vital for me to exhort you today to not assume that being in the company of genuine disciples automatically makes you one also. A change of heart is necessary, and God's the only one who can bring that about in your life, in the life of your child, in the life of your parents, your neighbors. The accuser opposes the Son of God, and and he is the one ultimately who is active in the hearts of all those who oppose him yet today. Not not Judas nor the one who opposes Jesus today are innocent bystanders to their satanic rejection of Christ. I mean, in Christ it is true that nothing will separate you from the love of God, but I wonder if you are counted among those who oppose Jesus. What satanic payment is there has been sufficient to you to separate you from him? What's been your price to commit treason against the king of kings? Listen, those who oppose God through a proud, unrepentant life will find the God of life opposing them. But those who humble themselves before God, surrendering their lives to him, will find the God of life showering them with grace. Judas chose poorly. May you instead... Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So that that, the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Don't resist him, Jesus. Resist him. Firm in your faith. May we by the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of this word take care. May we resist the devil and come to know the power and purposes of God in our lives. And no matter how hellish opposition to the Son of God is, nothing is able to thwart the sovereign and loving plan of God to redeem those who are truly His. And it leads us to the final point this morning. Nothing deters the Son of God. Verses 7 through 13. We're not going to take time to read that whole section, but Verse 7 says, then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. What a glorious day, this day the Passover lamb would be sacrificed, a glorious day that foolish people try to squash, a glorious day that Satan opposes with rage. But a glorious day that all the rejection and opposition could not quell nonetheless, because nothing deters the Son of God. Nothing deters the Father. Nothing deters the Spirit. Nothing deters our Trinitarian God. With with enemies increasing from all sides, Jesus, you might remember, had set his face, set his eyes. He had set himself to say, I'm going to Jerusalem. Nothing's stopping me. Plenty of people tried to stop him. His disciples, too. Nothing was going to stop him. Nothing got in his way. Nothing deterred the Son of God. He said that he would, at Luke chapter 18, be delivered over to the Gentiles, and he'll be mocked, and he'll shamefully be treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they're going to kill him, and on the third day he will rise. He was talking about himself. This is a man, a God-man, the God-man, who has set his face towards Jerusalem to go and experience that for you and for me. Nothing and no one was going to deter him from being the Passover lamb for all his people. This is no new plan. This isn't a plan in the making. It's not an adjustment to a failed plan. God's God's Word has given us details surrounding the death of Jesus for hundreds of years prior to his death. Prophecy after prophecy in Genesis, in the Psalms, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Zechariah, and on and on and on. Not to mention the full prophetic speaking of Jesus as he says exactly what's going to happen on with precision in the days that he is entering now. And what we come to in this whole section, um, not just, th- not just verse th- 7 through 13, but the continuing section that Pastor Cale is going to speak on next week more, that there's a wonderful connection between Jesus and the Passover celebration. And what else we see is the predetermined path of the true Passover lamb. Let me just speak into the predetermined piece for a few moments and leave the rest for Cale next week. At this point in the story, um, in the text, we've come to Thursday, Thursday of Holy Week. It's the day that the Lamb is sacrificed and Jesus is telling Peter and John, go make arrangements. And you recall from the beginning of the sermon that this is a busy time. This is like trying to get a hotel room in Indianapolis during the Final Four or the Big Ten Tournament or whatever. Almost impossible. But Jesus says, uh, go make arrangements, but he tells them specifically what to do. (laughs) He's already got it all plotted out, already all planned. And, And this isn't simply the actions of a really, really good administrator. It's the action of the sovereign Lamb of God who is predetermined to be sacrificed for all who would ever trust him. Everything Jesus told them to look for and find, they found, right? That's what the last verse says. Verse 13 says, they found everything as he had said. The last Passover meal and the first Lord's Supper wasn't just planned out well. The true Passover lamb, King Jesus, is actually the the lamb being prepared for them on that Thursday night, unbeknownst to them. For them, they were celebrating the Passover. For Jesus, he was saying, I'm being prepared as the Passover lamb. This is no happenstance There's no coincidence of timing that it just happens to be on this night of all nights from the Passover itself in the book of Exodus to the annual celebration of the Passover to the voice of Gabriel in Matthew chapter one who says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Or John the Baptist declaration in in John chapter one, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. To Jesus' declaration in Luke chapter four where he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. To this declaration in chapter 19, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Everything in eternity and everything in the temporal timeline of human history has been moving so purposefully to this specific day that even the rejection, the betrayal, and the opposition, of man and Satan are sovereignly utilized to bring about the deliverance and redemption of all God's people as the true Passover lamb is being finally prepared to be sacrificed for all who would believe in him. Whew. Man, get caught up in the story. The eternal story. Hey, It's ridiculous ridiculously amazing. Who could make this stuff up? Well, scribes, Pharisees, and people like Judas, it's all made up. Nonsense. Resistance, rejection, even worst case, apostasy. Nothing deters the Son of God from redeeming a people for himself to dwell with forever. One pastor, so helpful when he states the following. How is God preparing the Passover lamb? Through the murderous designs of the chief priests and the scribes. How is the Passover lamb being prepared for them? Well, through the betraying words and actions of an unfaithful disciple named Judas. How is the Passover lamb being prepared for them? Through the malevolent purposes of Satan. Did you realize what's happening here? This is a Ligon Duncan. God is preparing his son Jesus, to be the Passover lamb for his disciples and for all who trust in him through the machinations of murderous priests, a a betraying disciple, and Satan himself. You tell me God isn't sovereign. The Passover lamb is being prepared. The lamb slain for the foundation of the world, or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. It's all being prepared for them by God because this is the only way that they will be spared the judgment of God. This is the only way that they'll be spared the angel of death This is the only way that they'll be redeemed out of bondage to sin. This is the only way that they'll be brought into forgiveness through the shed blood of Christ. This is the only way that they'll be experiencing adoption to the family of God through the propitiation, through the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true Passover lamb. This is our Jesus. This is what he's doing here. This is why we celebrate in just a few moments this this amazing reality that he has become our Passover lamb. He is our deliverance. Absolutely nothing is able to thwart the sovereign and loving plan of God to redeem his people. Friends, the foolishness of man always resists the Son of God, always rejects the Son of God, and the accuser of the brothers always opposes the Son of God, but nothing deters the Son of God from being the Lamb who would be slain for all those who would ever believe. Trust him today. Believe in him today. Rest in him today. Do you see the beauty? Do you see the beauty of this? This is the point. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Nebuchadnezzar once said about God, None can stay his hand. Wicked king, right, who is humbled in this moment in Daniel 4. There, there's no fight against him as much as there is rejection and opposition. He's going to redeem a people for himself to dwell with. Nothing will stand in his way to get his people saved. He is God he does as he pleases. He is sovereign, God of gods, and as such, he is able to rescue whomever he chooses. And his power and reign will not end. His kingdom is without end. Nothing can hold him back. None can stay his hand. Do you see the beauty in this? Do you see the love of God towards you in this? For, for some of you, he calls you to turn, for, turn away from your outright rejection and resistance and opposition to him and surrender to him by faith this morning and trusting yourself to him as the sacrificial lamb for you. Turn to him and find life before your resistance turns to rejection and turns to opposition. <sighs> to a place where there is no more room for Repentance. There is a place, there's a place that one gets in the rejection and opposition of Jesus to where there is no more room for repentance. I don't know when that is, and neither do you. But if you're living in opposition to him, turn, turn today. Today's the day of your salvation come to Jesus. For others in this room, he calls you to return to him, to repent of the hints of resistance and the hints of opposition that pop up in your unbelief and find freedom in trusting him for the forgiveness for that very resistance that's at work in you. Perhaps you believe, yet you feel significantly weary in the battle because it is a battle. Your resistance in this case isn't against God, your resistance is against the enemy's opposition of you and you're tired. Consider that God's sovereign plan to redeem you wasn't just something in the past that happened 2000 years ago, but it's in the present today to keep you and it's in the future prepared for you guarding you currently to that day when you will see him face to face and be finally saved. Take heart from the encouragement in Romans chapter 8 that says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things including the strength and faith you need to keep following him. Friends, he who called you is faithful. You don't feel faithful this morning, do you? We see our lack. He who called us is faithful. He who began a good work in you, will complete it. He will, on that final day, present you with great joy before his presence. He, he has written your name on his hand. He whose plans will not be thwarted knows you, and he loves you, and he's committed to your final redemption. So don't lose heart in the fight. Be of good courage. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and we are in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of this truth, having put on the breastplate of Christ's righteousness that is yours in him, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, friends, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication with all the saints. Uh, We pray for one another that we will know, we will know that nothing can thwart the plan, the loving and sovereign plan of God to redeem us. Friends, may we fall down and surrender our lives to this Lord, our Passover lamb.